Hello, everyone. Let's get this set up here. Okay. Everything looks good. Um, we have very low class number today. All right. Uh, so I think we're just a little over a third of the class. Um, it's not great. Uh, so why don't we maybe wait a minute or two in order to, to start just because you know, maybe people are struggling to get in. Um, I haven't seen any emails about a struggle to get in. But anyway, while we are waiting, I'll check on that. I did add another document to the research paper folder that I did as a, a maybe an aid to help you guys in the writing process. Um, and so while we're waiting, if you could go to that part in the content folder area and open that up, it's... Um, titled Uneven You or Uneven You Paragraph. Um, I'm going to take like 10 minutes to look at that before jumping back into back into HEDA. Oh, sorry, I uh, couldn't see where the copy of my play was, but I'm going to wait one more minute and then we're just going to go because... Okay, one more person here. So, Kimberly, we are going into the content folder area, and I added a new document to the research paper folder um, as an, an aid, and we're just going to go over that. It's titled uh, uh, Uneven You. Sorry, I'm a little late. I was helping my daughter with her school because I've got my kids home. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. You, you, don't have to, you don't have to apologize. I'm just... Uh, just uh, uh, telling you why we're sitting here silently. Um, but okay, you know, it's it's 1.22. Um, I, I don't really want to spend any more time um, waiting, so let's get into it. Um, why I posted this, this is comes from, I'll show, I'll show you the book. This comes from uh, Eric Hyatt's book here, The Elements of Style, of Academic Style. And I, I put it in there to help you guys now that you're probably in the writing phase of the, the paper. I imagine by this point you've um, done your research, found your sources, reading through it, uh, uh, coming up with um, uh, you, you know, your, your thesis and the kind of various things you want to say. Um, and now we're, we're looking at the... Uh, the new file I added in the course content area under research in the research paper folder titled Uneven You. So if you want to open that up, that's what we're, we're going to be talking about for the next seven or so minutes. Um, but anyway, so what this chapter that I've given you does is it, it gives you kind of a stencil or an outline for how to write a paragraph or an academic paper, as well as a, a larger outline for a larger paper. Now this obviously I'd say isn't, um, it, it, this isn't a hard and fast science, this isn't a lab report, you, you don't have to follow this exactly. However, I often find when struggling with writing, like a really careful model that I can follow is a means of getting out of that struggle. So, and, and kind of solving writer's block. Um, it will also help you, even if you're you're not struggling with your writing and it's going along really well, to make sure that you're uh, addressing the reader's needs. Because often this is another problem I personally have, where I have a really exciting idea and I'm really excited, and um, the, the information, I'm giving you a ton of information, or giving my reader a ton of information, and it's not contextualized, and so I have to go back and edit and and fit the data into the context of my idea. And so let's talk about what the hell all that means. Um, and so I want to go to the second page of the PDF, page 60 in the, the actual text. And what we have here, and I've circled them for you, is a list of five in reverse chronological order, five down to one. What these represent are types of sentences. And he uses numbers instead of letters because these sentences are, 
are charted. He puts this on a kind of Cartesian plane, and each sentence represents a level on the plane, right? Uh, um, uh, a y-axis. So if you compare those five and you look at uh, page 62, so that's one, two, three, fourth page in your PDF, you could see the, the sort of um, Cartesian graph there and how it looks. And the sentence levels are on the y-axis and then the just the, the sentences one, two, three, four, five, six, etc., are on the x-axis. And what happens here is it starts at a level four and goes down to one and then goes back up to a level five, hence uneven u. The right part of the, the graph is higher up than the left part of the graph. And so let's jump into what that means. Um, what he wants then is each sentence to move from a general statement about the topic you're covering to specific data, be that data a quote from a play, statistical information, uh, a factual account, some, something hard and fast that you're using as evidence. And then after giving the data, as you can see at the bottom of the graph, you then provide the context and reading, that is the, the, the interpretive work, that brings you back up from specific to a general statement. In the end, connecting that one paragraph to your larger argument as a whole. Uh, so let's go through that. Um, so we have here, what we normally start is with a level four sentence. So level four, it says there on page 60, less general, oriented towards a problem, pulls ideas together. Then we move down, conceptual summary. So what we have in, in four is what's the problem, right? What's, what's the issue? Uh, conceptual summary is a summary of your theory or solution to the problem, right? Now, maybe it's not the full thesis sentence. Maybe it's um, presented more as a question or as a partial answer or whatnot, but it is a summary of kind of your ideas about, about the problem presented at level four. So you're presenting the problem, next sentence, presenting a solution or partial solution, then you're moving down to a description, a plain or interpretive summary, um, establishing shot, right? So there's a, a film television metaphor there. But what this is, is a explanation of the type of data you're going to give with kind of a filter, right? I'm going to explain, this is the data I'm going to use, and it's going to show X. Then you move down to level one, the data itself. Maybe that's a quote from the play. Um, maybe it is a summary of two scenes, or maybe it is a description of the sequence of scenes, and it's the sequence of scenes that reveals something. Maybe it's statistics. I, I don't think anybody's going to be using statistics for this research paper, but maybe somebody is. Uh, whatever it is, it's, a, it's that data. It's raw, unmediated meaning you're not really giving an interpretation, you're just stating it as objectively as possible. Um, that's why quotes are great, because you, you really can't mediate a quote, right? Or you, you shouldn't. That's called plagiarism. Um, but anyway, then from there you, you move back up, and then you go to another sentence too. Um, excuse me, maybe not a sentence too, um, but you move up to a, a sentence three, where you give a, a summary, again, or a concept summary of the data. What that means is you are explaining that quote, that data, that summary, whatever. You're explaining it within the context of your concept, your theory, your reading. Um, so you're giving a summary of what, how you're going to read something. You give the actual thing you're reading then you go back to that that summary level and you explain it right you give more detail um, then you move back up towards the the larger thesis of the paragraph itself 
and then you end with a sentence five. Sentence five here, it says abstract general oriented towards a solution or a conclusion. That is the, the largest umbrella. Here you're talking about um, uh, connecting it to the larger issue of the paper. Um, and so it might be oriented towards a, a solution uh, that depends if your paper is presenting a problem that needs solving. Again, I, you know, I don't think a lot of you are going to be doing that. However, um, you might want to think of sentence five as the most abstract level and therefore the level connected to the paper as a whole. All right, so let's take a look at, well, that took more than seven minutes. Anyway, let's take a look at um, page 61. So this should be the third page in the PDF. And there is an example paragraph here. Okay, so the first sentence is a level one sentence. We begin with the problem of character. And you can see in the notes here, it says this first sentence establishes a general theme. Great. Uh, next sentence, which we see is a level three. That the reader understands the novel is populated by minor characters, that these Sorry, I have a shadow here, so I couldn't see it. Um, that these seeming protagonists have come detached from their usual narrative position depends heavily on intertextual references to a number of other works. Okay, so now here at a sentence three, um, uh, excuse me, a level three, this is sentence two, level three, this provides specifics about the argument of this paragraph. So we're moving down from um, a general topic, character, to something specific about this paragraph, which is, uh, and, and I'll kind of give a reading of this, which is minor characters. And what this writer is saying is that minor characters are informed by intertextual material. That is, they're informed by other things the reader has read. All right, so a minor character in, in a book or movie we might recognize that character type or even um, that character specifically from other things we've read. So that seems to be a kind of uh, a conceptual summary or even the argument of this paragraph that um, we know minor characters more or less in name or not in name from other things we've read or seen. Okay, so that's a level, that's a level three, a solid level three move down to a level two. These range from the popular to the highbrow. Okay, and so that sets up the evidence. And so the sentence after that is going to be the evidence. And so the setup, the level two setup is, um, we're, this is true if it's um, characters drawn from really sophisticated stuff, like some of the stuff we've been reading, or characters taken from popular culture highbrow, lowbrow. So there's a filter through which to look at the evidence. Then we get the evidence. Belvedere and Nestor, for example, are the names of the butlers in the 1980s American television sitcom, Mr. Belvedere, and the Tintin graphic novels, respectively. Uh, Clopin and Yorick hail from Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame, and of course, Hamlet. All right, that's the data. It's not a quote, but it's, it's facts, given facts. So now that we have that data, we're going to move up, not to a level two, we don't need to f present the data again, right, which is what level two sentences do. We move up to a level three, we return to the theory, to the concept that you're working on. And here's the level three sentence. Altogether, these characters amount to a cavalcade of conspicuous minority, an exemplification of the notion that quantity has a quality all its own. So what that, that seems to mean is that, um, that the value of the novel is the fact that it can, um, that it can put in a ton of stuff. That's what, uh, qual quantity has a quality all its own. The fact that there's a, just a ton of characters that can be taken from all over the place in itself is a value the novel has. That seems to be what what he's arguing, you can see in the notes here, beginning with altogether, which signals a move up towards summary and interpretation. These two sentences interpret the evidence given in level one. Okay. Um, then we move up even more. The next sentence is a level four. 
level four again. It's it's less general. Um, it's pulling these ideas together. And so here it is. To understand the novel thus requires us to understand how that characterological quality emerges from onomastic proliferation. Onomastic is, is um, it's the study of, I believe, first names, the study of kind of first first names, I think that that is. Um, and so what this person is saying in uh, admittedly clumsy language, though, is that we're now moving up from um, talking about character, which seems to be the, the argument of this paragraph, we're talking about character, to talking about the novel overall. So no, no longer talking about just character in the novel, but the novel. And what does he or she say? I think, I think this is high out, so we'll just say he. Um, that in order to understand the novel, we have to understand um, why there's so many different and important recognizable names in the novel, right? So in order to understand the novel, we have to understand the novel as being in conversation with a bunch of other different types of literature and media. All right, so we've made, gone from a claim about character to a larger claim about the novel. And then sentence five, which actually isn't a, a full sentence, it's a uh, it's a dependent clause, which is fine. You could do a level five as a dependent clause, um, depending on how like, sophisticated your writing is, uh, you know. But anyway, so here's the level five. And in turn, understand what the novel might mean by quality at all. And so we get into the largest, uh, the largest umbrella, right, uh, which is oriented towards a solution or a conclusion. Uh, the conclusion might be that when reading the novel, um, that has to change our understanding of what quality is. You know, what what does quality mean? So we've gone from we're talking about character, we're talking about the novel, how how our understanding of character informs the novel, um, and then we move back at the last step to our understanding of the 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 concept of quality what is quality what does good quality mean and that is kind of enveloped around four facts four facts the name of two butlers from mr belvedere a show i've never seen and um the names from hamlet and the hunchback of notre dame so surrounding these four facts stated in one sentence we've moved from a discussion about the nature of character in the novel, to a discussion about how novels work, to a discussion about how quality is, what good quality is. So that's a lot. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to go into it now because it's, it's probably less relevant. Um, but you could also see this model pertaining to the paper as a whole. And you could see a, a kind of version of that beginning on um, page 68. And you could, it's a, um, it posits that the uneven U is a fractal. What a fractal is, is in mathematics, a, a fractal is any kind of geometric unit that when you zoom in on it, it retains the, shape, the same shape as when you zoom out. Right, so that a fractal just maintains its shape through various um, through various close examinations, and so the idea is that the entire paper functions as an uneven U, and instead of having each sentence take a different level, each paragraph takes a different level within the paper. Um, I think this is a, a more complicated and probably more suspect arrangement. Um, I think the uneven you for individual paragraph is great. I think this is something definitely to read through and look at. And I think that maybe when outlining your paper, the uneven you paper structure that begins to be discussed on page 68 through the end of the PDF um, can be very helpful. And you can see, I think that on page 70 and 71, there's a big outline for a, uh, a potential paper on memento, 
um, the the Christopher Nolan movie. So if anybody likes that movie, you you know, you, you can enjoy this maybe a, a little bit more. Um, I've got three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, so a, a nine paragraph paper. So that's kind of around where what you guys will be writing, you know, roughly that, maybe a little less uh, for a six to eight page paper. Um, yeah, no, that's about right for a six to eight page paper. And so you can look at this as a structure and maybe you want to kind of um, use that as an outline in order to help with with the writing process because I know how much of a pain in the ass the writing process can be uh, and so that's that's there to assist you I will say before stopping for questions um, the uneven you is one way of organizing information it is <coughs> it is not the only way of doing it um, I would say it is a it's a very clear way of doing it and often writing can can go awry in research papers when you start to start saying facts conclusion facts conclusion facts conclusion right when you end up getting a um a one three one three one three one three paper right data concept data concept data concept um you know you you might want to provide two points of data in order to prove your concept and fair enough you could do like a, a four three two one two one three four five paper right perfectly fine um but you don't you kind of don't want to do only one or two of those sentence levels in a paragraph and a lot of people do that a lot of students know that i've done that um you know, have to go back and, and rewrite stuff when, when I do. Um, it's an easy trap to fall into where you're doing maybe like a 3-1 paper, right? Concept, data, concept, data, concept, data, without framing it in terms of the larger stakes of the paper. All right, so that was me talking for a solid 20 minutes. Let me pause and, and take questions. Okay, I the last class didn't have questions either. I, that's a lot. I know I threw at you. Um, I think the the visuals hopefully will. Sorry, my my text messaging thing is on. Let me just turn that off. Uh, there it is. Um, hopefully the visuals will kind of make the the concept a a little easier. But it's really the idea of moving from. A general idea to specific information and back up to the general idea again all right so let's put that aside I mean if you do have any information or any questions that uh, not information excuse me any questions that come up about the the uneven you process uh, during the class you could just ask me about that every question from here on out doesn't have to be about HEDA um, but let's get into our favorite Norwegian lady. And last time we talked about, oh, I, you know, last time, I don't think we got into the play, right? We kind of stopped before we actually got into the, the text itself. Um, but today I want to kind of go over the first half of it, the first two acts. So let's see. We talked about this as a well-made play, and we also talked about this as a problem play. So if remember, well-made play kind of draws from melodrama. Um, it usually involves a, a kind of Aristotelian structure, as well as a, a sort of secret that is contained in an object. And so those are kind of some of the big things. So how might Hedda Gabler be a well-made play? We'll start there. I mean, the aristocracy aspect is huge, like, throughout the play, um, because that's, you know, the life that Hedda comes from. 
Um, so I would say that that plays a big role. Okay. So the okay. So the 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 fact that she comes from kind of this military background um, is is an important aspect of this play. Sure, I, I would agree. Um, what makes it well? What what is the big thing that kind of draws attention to it as a well-made play, based upon our discussion on Monday? Right. I think what what you're showing, Rachel, is kind of it as a maybe a problem play or social problem play. Yeah, I thought that's what you asked. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. I, either Sorry. one. No problem. I, I probably did. Um, so yeah, so a, a social problem play would reveal or highlight a, a kind of a social issue or an argument. And so Hedda's background, the fact that it is, um, it's pseudo aristocratic. It's, it's kind of, she comes from this, um, military family background. Um, that is, that's certainly important. And what the play is, is arguing is informed by that, obviously. Um, but was I was going for with the well-made play was a, a simpler answer was uh, the manuscript is a big part of. Oh, that's okay, no problem. Um, the manuscript, um, Loveborg's manuscript, is an, an important part of this, and through the manuscript, uh, a number of kind of secrets are revealed, right. Um, and that becomes kind of the the object that gets hidden or lost that leads to a revelation of secrets, um, which you learn in, in Act 4 uh, is that there isn't this kind of beautiful suicide that Loveborg um, probably accidentally shot himself, and it's unclear as to where he shot himself, um, you know, but it, it, it wasn't the beautiful suicide that Hedda imagined. So the manuscript and the kind of the revelation of secrets that surround the manuscript that we're going to get more into on Friday's class, that is, um, that's an important part of this. And that's Ibsen's take on the well-made play, how he's using that genre to his own ends. But let's start then with the, uh, with act one. Right, so those those are my kind of big questions here. The the well made play, uh, how does Ibsen, you know, use that genre and to what end, and then the problem play or the social problem play. Those plays typically have kind of a statement about society they're talking about. Rachel picked up on Hedda's background is informing that statement, and what we kind of want to answer by the end of Friday is how is this a social problem play? How would you describe this as a social problem play? But let's put that to Friday and let's, um, let's talk about Hedda. So what, uh, how can you describe Hedda? When we first meet her, um, what, what do we learn about her? How do you feel about her, especially in the first act? She sucks. <laughs> All right, we talked about yeah. To put it bluntly. Okay, but so why does she suck? She is very self-obsessed mm -hmm. for one. She also like is just rude as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's the part with like Aunt Jewel's hat where, you know, Aunt Jewel like specifically wore it for Hedda to like kind of seem fancy and Hedda's <laughs> like yeah your hat is awful <laughs> goodbye yeah and it's just she just doesn't strike me as a good person <laughs> okay in any aspect yeah it's it's the idea of the um save a cat kick a dog it's this Hollywood screenwriting technique of if you want to establish who's the good person, have them save a cat. If you want to establish who the villain is, have them kick a dog, right? And and <laughs> we have with Hedda right away, um, she mistakens Miss uh, um, Tessman and Julie's hat for the maid's hat. And we find out later in the act, she does that intentionally to insult Miss Tessman. So we 
yeah, we get that um, right away. And then, so we, we have an idea, first of all, that she is, uh, did we lose somebody? Oh, Rachel's Wi-Fi is acting up. Okay, anyway, um, so we get the idea right away that um, that she is a little bit above everyone. At least that's how she thinks of herself. Um, then we have uh, Mrs. Elvstead come in. Or let me back up before we get into Mrs. Elvstead. Let's characterize the difference between Hedda and uh, her new husband. How would you compare them? He's very intent on like pleasing her and making sure she's happy, but without actually figuring out what makes her happy, um, which I think is interesting. Um, especially considering the fact that he's like such an academic so he's supposed to be so like incredibly smart um and the fact that he got his phd in like six months i think also mm. kind of highlights that mm. um so you have this guy who's supposed to be super smart but it doesn't seem like he's very smart when it comes to his wife and then you have a wife who is basically a petulant child <laughs> so interesting contrast yeah so, yeah, you have guys super smart. They, they, he, and I think that's a good point. He that you're, you're making, Rachel, is he's trying to give Hedda what she wants, and he sort of doesn't get what she wants. And I think that's that's a really great point, is that he doesn't understand what she wants, and that's you know that's kind of his dullness. He's sort of. He's very smart in his academic ways, and he's kind of a social idiot, <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I'm kind of being harsh, but um, one example of this is the house, right? The house they live in that seems to be somewhat out of their price range, and he's hoping to get his academic job so that it becomes within their price range. Why did they get that specific house? I can't remember specifically, but I know that um, Tesman, when he's talking to the judge, is like, oh, this house is critical for my wife's happiness. Mm -hmm. Like, like that's why we spent so much money. Yeah. Yeah. So she said she really loved the house, that she really wanted it. And so he, he bought it. And we later find out that the reason she said she liked the house was they were you know, he insisted on walking her home from a party and they had nothing to talk about. And so she brought up how much she loved this house they were walking past in order to kind of fill a void in the conversation. <laughs> so, you know, the, the the house is nice and it seems to fit into Hedda's kind of idea of herself as being part of society, right? This is very important to Hedda. But at the same time, the, the house is itself a miscommunication between these two people right he thinks it's it means the world to her and for her it's it was a way of dealing with this really awkward guy right who kept trying to walk her home um and so you know even in the space they're they're living uh there's a a, a misconnection between these two people okay but so we have that um and so we also have um, Mrs. Elvstead come in in the first act and, and speak with Hedda. And what is she doing in this play? Uh, for one, Hedda and her went to school together. So, like, they know each other from, you know, previous lives, I would say. Um, 
And she's there because she's kind of having an affair with the guy who's tutoring her kid. Um, and he's like a reformed alcoholic, and he moves back into the city to basically compete for this, like, professor's gig. Um, and so she's she's worried that, like, if he goes back into the city, he's going to fall back into, like, that alcoholism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's uh, this is uh, Evard Loveborg, and um, and she's waiting for him. Uh, she's gonna stay with him, and yeah, and she's she's kind of in. She is not kind of. She she is in love with him, and um, he does have this past, right? As as you said, Rachel, he's been kind of drinking, um, and she also has a. a past with Hedda they were in school together and Hedda used to kind of bully her we learn and she was very scared of Hedda so apparently this is not new behavior on Hedda's part um and so that brings in the Loveborg um and why is Loveborg of interest to Hedda because that's really the only reason she's talking to to Mrs. Mrs. Elvstead right is because she needs to get information about Loveborg. Yeah, they were together. Um, I think before she met Tesman, mm-hmm. or before she married Tesman. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like a history with them. Um, I think it's also interesting because the scene kind of sets her up as this manipulator um, that she kind of like continues to show throughout the play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really funny that you have these people who are supposed to be so smart and so educated and Hedda is able to just kind of like wrap them around her finger and mm-hmm. get what she wants out of them and then just be like, okay, bye. Yeah, I, 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 she is, she does seem to be the smartest person on stage, possibly. Um, you know, maybe Love Boar can compete with her for that. Uh, she's also possibly the only person on stage who has her her priorities. Uh, however, I'm going to push back a little bit on she gets what she wants. Would you say by the end of the play she gets what she wants? Or ever gets what she wants? I think what she wants is chaos, to be completely really? honest. I oh. think she's very unhappy with how her life is, and hmm. so in order to kind of negate that she just wants everyone else to kind of also be in like a chaotic situation um so i know that obviously there's a focus on like the idea of loveborg committing suicide and having this like beautiful death um and then that doesn't happen obviously um but yeah no she just wants to kind of cause trouble i think okay i i think that she does want to cause trouble um, I, I would push back again against this idea of just chaos because I think she wants something like beauty, right? And beauty involves for her, um, I think beauty is, is kind of the romanticized version of beauty that, that we talked about and, you know, last, last week, was that the last, <laughs> that was the last lesson two weeks ago. Sorry. Cause we had Thanksgiving a holiday and all that, um, was I think she wants these kind of beautiful things. Be- so maybe beautiful chaos, right? And that's where um, that's where some things go awry for her, right? Because it is, you know, she kind of learns that the beautiful chaos she put in, in motion turned out to be profoundly ugly chaos. Um, but anyway, th- so I think that's that's the consideration to think about is and you know you're bringing it up Rachel is uh what does Hedda want and does she get what she wants because if we're not thinking about that then she's kind of a psychopath right she's just sort of the worst and and she still may be the worst I'm not saying you have to love this character but if we think of there is a specific or reasonable purpose to what she's doing there's actually a thing she wants um, you know, maybe more than chaos or more specific than chaos, we might kind of be able to understand her a little bit better, maybe with a little bit more sympathy. 
which we should always try for, right? With characters, we should try to, to find the sympathetic re reading. Um, but l let's talk a little bit about also moving into uh, to Dr. Brack and, um, and what he's doing in this play. kind of read as like a father figure mm -hmm. um which is interesting because you know obviously Hedda has um an, an actual father who is very important and mm -hmm. um the fact that they chose or that, that, that it was chosen for this judge to be like this figure in her life it's interesting mm -hmm. yeah that that's interesting to to frame him as a father figure. I I think that that works. He's he seems to be the one person on stage who gets her, right? He not entirely and not at first, um, but he seems to by the end of the play understand that he's in a power game and she is also in a power game, right? That to control other people's lives, Hedda says. And at the end, Hedda admits that now the judge can control her life. So they seem to have, um, if we're going to talk about people as being smart in the way Hedda is smart, it seems like the judge is as smart as she is, or maybe not as smart, but close to it, right? They, they, they get each other. Uh, and it's interesting that you should say, Rachel, about father figures, because her father and we talked about this on Monday, is, is a general, and that seemed to mean a lot to her. She used to ride on a horse with a hat. I don't know why the hat's important, but it seems to indicate that she had this kind of um, lofty uh, way of thinking about the world, maybe a sort of Prince of Homburg way of thinking about the world, right? That kind of romanticized military man notion. Um, putting this play after the Prince of Homburg was was no accident. <laughs> you know, this I think is, is in part this type of play is a response to those types of plays. Not specifically the Prince of Homburg, but that kind of um, romantic nationalism that you see in plays like the Prince of Homburg. Um, but yeah, so so Brock is as you're saying, kind of a, a, a father figure, um, and the conversation she has with Brock at the very end of act one uh, because he's either a father figure or like her she kind of reveals um, a little bit of excitement about why or a little bit uh, a little bit of why she's excited about Loveborg being back into the in the scene and so I'll read a little bit from the end of the act so it's like the, the second or third page from the end um, and they're talking about the appointment. So the appointment is the job that uh, Tessman is expecting that Loveborg potentially is competing for now. And so Brock says, um, easy now, I'm sure you'll get the appointment, the, speaking to Tessman, um, but you'll have to compete for it. Hedda, just think, Tessman, it'll be like a kind of championship match. Tessman, but Hedda, dearest, how can you take it so calmly? Hedda, I'm not the least bit calm. I can't wait to see how it turns out. Um, so we have that that little bit there. What do you think that speaks to? That little bit of a, a conversation between the three of them. That's almost like she's describing a horse race instead <laughs> of like, you know, her husband. Mm getting a job um but the fact that she mentions you know like i'm not the least bit calm i'm excited to see how this turns out like mm. a normal person would be like oh yay i hope you get the job so that you know we can continue financing our lives and mm. all of that but she's just like "Ooh, we have some drama here mm -hmm. we have some unexpected drama this is exciting let's see how it turns out yeah this is this is far better than him just getting an appointment and, you know, doing what he does normally. 
which she doesn't seem to be particularly interested in. Now there's a drama between her former lover and her husband. Yay. You know, <laughs> this is this is exactly what she wants. Um, this is what makes the world interesting. The world, which potentially was about to become very, very boring, might now become interesting. And when we meet uh, Loveborg in Act 2, what is his attitude towards this supposed competition? Is Loveborg like, like ready to go to the go to the mat for this disappointment? Not particularly. I think he has a much more like kind of laid back attitude towards the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. He's he isn't that concerned, right? What is what is Loveborg's initially anyway? What's Loveborg's big concern? The manuscript. The manuscript. So he's written one book, and it's this this that's been published this year, the year of the the present tense of the play. And um, it's a book about all of history, this grand work about history. And this new book, which he has a manuscript for, it's not published yet, and it's the only copy of the manuscript. Um, it's about the future. It's about what's, what is going, going to happen in the future. Um, so it's, it's a kind of, he seems almost like a Hegel figure. Like Hegel wrote about what he thought of as the science of history and how it, how it moves forward inevitably to a new end, that type of thing. But it's, the point is, it's a really big, big brain, all of history type of idea, major theory that disrupts and changes everything, right? And so that's what Loveborg is concerned about, not an appointment that you know not not some job right he's concerned with you know maybe we might call it the higher things but this this competition that Hedda is expecting you know well you know one comp one competitor isn't that interested in it so it's not going to be again there's a kind of frustrated expectation there it's not going to be this exciting um exciting contest between lovers or something like that it's he he's working on something completely different um and speaking of loveborg we, we don't have that much time but let's do a little comparison between loveborg and tessman so loveborg's working on these these big ideas um kind of groundbreaking what about tessman And we can think about it maybe right towards the um, right towards the beginning of the act. So uh, of excuse me, the act of Act Two, and I'll read a little bit from it. And this is again Brock and Hedda, and uh, you know her her father figure as as Rachel calls him, which also gets frustrated because in the end he blackmails her. <laughs> um, but anyway, this is Hedda to go for a whole six months without meeting a soul who knew the least bit about our circle. No one that could talk to uh, talk about our kind of things. Brock. Ah, yes, I think that would bother me too, Hedda. But the most unbearable thing of all, what? To be everlastingly together with, with one and the same person, Brock. Morning, noon, and night, yes. At every conceivable hour, Hedda. I said everlastingly, Brock. All right, but our good friend Tessman. I really should have thought, Hedda. My dear judge, Tessman is a specialist. Brock, undeniably, Hedda, and specialists aren't at all assuming to travel with, not at all amusing to travel with, not in the long run anyway, Brock, not even the specialist that one loves, Hedda, ugh, don't use that syrupy word, Brock, what's that, Mr. Hedda, Mrs. Hedda, Hedda, well, just try yourself to listen to the history of civilization morning, noon, and everlastingly. Yes, yes, and all this business about domestic crafts in the Middle Ages. That really is too revolting. So, what we have here is the grand romantic theory of history coming out of um, Loveborg 
And we compare that to what Tessman is doing, which is he's a specialist. He isn't concerned with big ideas that over overthrow philosophy and the study of history or understanding of civilization. He's interested in domestic crafts in the Middle Ages. <laughs> you know, it's it couldn't be more different and potentially more boring. I'm sure domestic crafts in the Middle Ages might be fascinating. Um, I don't mean to speak down about specialization. All academics specialize. That's the the, the truth of academia. Um, but you could see there in Hedda's eyes how these two men are different. One is this, um, yes, he's, he's a drunk, um, but he's, you know, kind of filled with emotion and grandness, bigness, right? He is like the Napoleon of intellect. That's Loveborg. And on the other side, we have a specialist, you know, a guy who bought a house because his wife thought it was too awkward to talk to him about anything else. Um, and that, that's what's going on here. Those are the, that's the way Hedda is framing the difference between these two men. And what we're going to see in the, the rest of this act, and then act three and four, is how those expectations that Hedda might have and does have about the world, about how the world could work, about um, her means of establishing authority in that world, and especially about these kind of romantic ideas that she's inherited from potentially her father, at least from the previous generation, how those can turn out to frustrate and damage. And I've, I've kept you over by more than a minute. Um, so I will see you on Friday. Oh, fill out the, uh, the, the set survey, the Yukon set survey. That would be really helpful to me if you guys could do that. All right. But if not, I will see you Friday.